This is the Palladian Energy Podcast, a podcast series for energy professionals featuring short, insightful interviews with experts who can shed light on topics that matter to you and your business. We'll cover issues relevant to the upstream, midstream and downstream sectors. The first series will comprise 10 episodes, each providing valuable information on the topic of digitalization in the oil and gas industry. I'm your host, Elizabeth Corner, Senior Editor at Palladian Publications. Please subscribe to the podcast for free on anchor.fm and rate and review. Sponsoring this episode of the Palladian Energy Podcast is Prisma Photonics helping to keep the most critical, large-scale infrastructure up and running. Introducing a quantum leap in pipeline monitoring for smarter, safer and more efficient operations. Head to prismaphotonics.com to learn more about PrismaFlow, a pipeline monitoring solution that can scale to thousands of kilometers without installing any sensors for leak detection, third-party intrusion excavations, and more. Prisma Photonics, pipeline response ability at scale. It's episode five of the first series of the Palladian Energy podcast, and I'm pleased to be joined by Ilan Bader, CEO, and James Cabe, Principal Consulting Engineer, both at Radiflow, an OT or industrial control systems cybersecurity company. Hi, Elan, and hi, James. Hi there. Good morning. Hey, good morning. So, Elan, to start us off, perhaps you can give me a brief summary of the work that Radiflow does and your role in leading the company. Sure. Uh, so, Radiflow is focused, as you said, on cybersecurity for industrial control systems that can be mainly critical infrastructure, power, water, transportation, or also more and more into the private sector with the manufacturing uh, customers. We are monitoring their industrial networks, the networks with all the automation devices and making sure that there are no indications of uh, potential breaches. And once they are, we are giving them an alert and some recommendations what they can do about it. And James, what about you? What are your primary objectives as principal consulting engineer? Now, I'm primarily in North America um, and I've had quite a bit of experience uh, with a bunch of uh, vendors as well as uh, automation in this industry. And uh, my past is actually in energy and oil and gas. Um, I usually am uh, considered an SME or, uh, you know, some sort of expert uh, mm-hmm. in the field, uh, both on the installation side, as well as the cybersecurity architecture side. I've done these many, many times, including assessments and, and know where, uh, people have holes and gaps in their infrastructure. So that's that's a viewpoint I usually provide as a consulting engineer. Great. So in this series of the Palladian Energy podcast, we are covering the topic of digitalization as it applies across the oil and gas sector. And I've got lots I want to ask you about. And I think I'd like to start by addressing the vulnerabilities that you feel are inherent in the critical infrastructure in the U.S. And perhaps you might explain for me how you differentiate between a targeted attack and a random non-targeted attack. So let's start with the first part of the question is, is what some of the most critical vulnerabilities are. And one of the biggest problems with energy in general uh, is just the vastness of the, of the infrastructure, right? How much area and ground you have to actually cover 
where there's not always humans. You know, you have people that are pumpers, which have to go out and do go to measuring stations. And there's lots and lots of, you know, wellhead, you know, equipment that's actually out there in the wild. And there's umbilical and then there's, the, you know, the pre-gates for midstream stuff. And then there's, you know, uh, you know, actually midstream and then getting it to, to be traded. And I just finished up, you know, a big uh, infrastructure um, startup actually for uh, a liquefied natural gas terminal. So sure. there's... There, the biggest problem is that diaspora. And then the, the last biggest issue is the, just the sheer amount of human beings that, that aren't out there that have you know, specific industry experience, you know, mated with uh, cybersecurity experience. And that's, that's a huge gap for, for, the, for, the, uh, for the entire industry. And I know everybody's feeling that pain. Mm-hmm. Um, to that point, that's the reason why Elon actually started the company um, is to automate some of that process and, and also uh, do the training, which is what one of the things that I was brought on to help them with. Elon, uh, would you like to elucidate further? Yeah, I think that, uh, as you mentioned, there are many gaps and many challenges with this kind of uh, industries because also they've been built over the years and the focus was, of course, about uh, productivity and not about uh, security, which only came as an issue uh, recently. So they have a lot of uh, gaps, a lot of vulnerabilities, and where we are trying to support is in terms of also providing not just the the tools, but also some uh, advice and some prioritization, what is important and what is urgent to be handled now and what can be deferred to a later stage. We actually get to a lot of these companies uh, and step in, and one of the biggest problems they have very, very initially, and, and it's been said by many incident responders, is that most of these companies don't even know what they have in the field. And that's one of the biggest problems is asset management is, I wouldn't say a mess because everybody attempts to do it very, very well, but it's, it's a very hard thing to keep up with and, and know what you've got in the field, especially if it's not something that helps you with a real-time analysis of, of what's actually out there and getting back to that large infrastructure you have to cover. So that, that uh, starting with that asset management piece then that bleeds can bleed very, very easily if you do it well into some sort of vulnerability management type of architecture, you know, where you can actually bring, you know, vulnerability into it. And then, and then, you know, through a maturation process, even, you know, possibly start bringing in risk into it. Now, I don't want to mix those two things up because maturity architectures and cybersecurity and risk uh, architectures are two completely different types of strategies. Right. So, um, and, and we see the, the, uh, the whole thing moving far more towards risk just because we've been pressured, you know, as an industry into, hey, we've got to get this thing fixed now, right? Um, we, we are seeing the problems now. Um, it's not something we've been allowed to kind of mature all the organizations with. So now we've had to go in with a risk management solution instead and, and really kind of pick a targeted approach to what's the most valuable thing, what the crown jewels are for every organization. And that's that's part and parcel to it. Now, and, and that's that's really where... The second question you asked, what are some of the differentiation between a targeted attack and a non-targeted attack? That is extremely tough to say um, unless you actually are after the incident. In other words, hey, while we're in the incident, we don't always know, you know what it is. But I will tell you, um, because ransomware is actually leading the way in some of the more targeted attacks now, um, most people used to say, hey, it's just ransomware. It's just going to start shutting down processes and things like that. But we've seen a, a, you know, the use of some of these C2 architectures that are, are, that are used by the ransomware gangs starting to be used by nation state organizations as kind of a upfront attack, um, like we used to call multi-pronged attack. 
Mm -hmm. um, and then they go deeper and stay resident afterwards. So the, the impact is not fully known while you're dealing with all the cleanup of the ransomware issues. All of a sudden, something buried itself elsewhere inside the organization. I know that was one of Elon's biggest concerns in one of our discussions um, when I first came to work for the organization. Elon, you know, I know you had something else on this one, too, about the targeted versus non-targeted since, you know, you're closer to our threat intelligence side. Yeah, I think that uh, the, the issue of targeted versus non-targeted, uh, we have seen uh, all types of this kind of uh, incidents happening in different uh, customers. Uh, and I think the main difference is that with the targeted attacks, you see that uh, usually there was a long-term planning in preparation. So usually just uh, there is the first step of just putting something inside and then it can take a few months until it settles down into the network, maximizing the understanding of the network, trying out a few things and then carrying out the, the attack. While the non-targeted attack, we have seen cases like somebody was just trying to find some free computers on the internet to do some crypto mining and so on. Then they are just walking around trying to find uh, some free assets which are not properly protected and then just uh, either doing a ransomware or using it for crypto mining or any other uh, uh, kind of a damage. So then you know that it's not really focused on this specific uh, customer and not on this specific uh, network. I've even seen, uh, you know, where uh, phone systems have even been targeted for, you know, inside the critical infrastructure and not that they were specifically targeted, just they were exposed for, you know, a matter of minutes and all of a sudden they wound up with a gambling server, a, a gambling server on them. Right. And, and that will actually, you know, even beyond crypto, that's something very, very interesting. But then, you know, resident afterwards, there was even more or greater issues um, afterwards, because all of a sudden you start seeing something sneaking around in, which, you know, it's sort of like a, a referral network, right? You know, hey, we've got this now. We know what these IPs are for because we know that they've been swift by this particular organization or this Internet service provider. And now um, we can sell the access to you. So there's, you know, sometimes it's, it's an evolved, it's, it's an evolving situation that continues to evolve. Even if you get hit by something non-targeted, Later on, it can be targeted, especially if you haven't cleaned it in an appropriate you know, amount of time. And am I right in thinking that you could potentially infiltrate uh, an organization and then be sort of undetected within the system for a while? Yeah, for the most uh, targeted attacks, this is usually what is happening, that they are, first of all, uh, getting into some of the assets which are just uh, exposed and then building their way into more and more into the network, making sure that they have the access to the critical assets, making sure that they also have a command and control channel back back home to, to their uh, uh, operator. And then they are just uh, staying dormant for a while. And then they are operated at the, the relevant uh, time. Yeah, the, the biggest difference I think we see now in some of that those attacks is that they are far more low and slow when it's a targeted attack um, mm -hmm. than it was before. Um, it, like, like we said before, you know, sometimes it's just a run rate or like Alan had said, it's a run rate where we may find an exposure, you know, out the web and we'll clean it up. And then all of a sudden, you know, because you're not really watching it, because, you know, sometimes this traffic shows up as just an anomaly, not necessarily an attack inside the system. Um, it could just look like someone starting to enumerate things. And you're like, well, why is that going on? And unless you have that kind of visibility inside your network, um, you, you can actually wind up with it. Yes, you can go clean it up. You can do the best you can do with an incident response. But then later on, you, you can still have actual issues um, that come back to haunt you later on in, in a more targeted uh, fashion because it does lie around low and slow.
Fantastic. So Ilan, the US government has taken what you have called an active approach towards OT cybersecurity. Can you describe to us what has been put in place by the US government recently and how Radiflow is reacting to those changes? I think there are two two things which are important. If you look on the industry in general, on the critical infrastructure, initially the government was mainly focused on the power utilities. This is where the U.S. government was actually quite ahead of the rest of the world for many years. But on the rest of the, the segments inside critical infrastructure, but also in the kind of the semi-critical infrastructure, there wasn't much of a guidance. There wasn't much of a push from the government. And this has been changing recently, I would say, in two or three main areas. One is in the area of putting out some clear guidelines how you can implement cybersecurity and what would be the the steps to do it, which is very important because most of these customers do not have the right expertise. And even if they have the the will to do it, then they are just, you know, trying to see uh, what's first. And then they say, okay, it's too complicated. Let's do it next year. So I think it's very important that the government, and we've been participating in several projects of the NIST uh, Center of Excellence for Cybersecurity, uh, where they've been defining the problem collecting several vendors together, making sure that they have a working solution and then just publishing it to the audience. So that's something that we have found that is very useful for customers because they just have already this recipe. If you are a customer in this segment and you have this type of a network, here are a few options how you can implement some first level of cybersecurity. So we have been participating in several such projects and we find afterwards that this is very useful for a uh, customers, especially as a, a first uh, step. The second thing that we have seen that the government uh, is starting uh, to uh, to push is to provide some grants. If you are initiating some uh, cybersecurity programs, we will support you in terms of uh, a grant because in some cases, like water utilities, for example, is a very good example. They usually don't have the funds to initiate some extra activities, so they need to wait for the next budget round in order to do something which might be three years ahead. So the government now wants them to do something earlier, so that's where they are getting these uh, grants. And there, from what we have seen, even if they get the grant, they need to know how to apply to it, they need to know how to get the resources to that. So this is where we are teaming up with some service providers in order to build this kind of a very focused program for the water utilities. If you are a municipality, if you are a, a regional water utility, here is how you can implement cybersecurity and here is how we can support you in that. So you just need to apply basically for the grant and work with us to make it happen in a very quick and efficient way. And I'm curious about how visible the government's new directives or new guidelines are on this. Are are they published? That's a great question. Um, So in some ways there are, and the visibility is great because uh, there's organizations that are quasi-governmental um, public-private partnerships like InfraGuard, um, mm-hmm. which I can actually point to, which is a, a great place, especially if you need to get involved in the community as well as get information um, for, the, for the government. One of the things we've got to remember is a lot of these industries, specifically around energy and, and even exploration production and midstream and, and some of the other even downstream uh, pieces is extremely regulated. Mm-hmm. So those people know pretty much the instant um, that, you know, regulation comes out or gets signed. We, we just saw some something get signed last week um, that's, that's actually going to be coming out here fairly soon, um, you know, around what the THS, uh, TSA and DHS are going to be doing for 
um, you know, further providing for pipelines that didn't actually have to do some of this stuff previously um, to come under, you know, greater government scrutiny. So trust me, those, those providers were watching, you know, exactly what was going on, when it was going on, because it, it is business impactful, especially when you're having to deal with the regulation side of it. So yes, it is. Does your normal person realize that this is happening or that there's some sort of regulation of the government doing it? Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, what they're really concerned about right now in the United States is that price going up at the pump. So, <laughs> and then there's various reasons for that, you know, uh, not, not having to do with regulation. Um, Although regulation does add some, you know, cost to, to that pump price. There's no doubt about it. Um, and some of it's just to make sure that it continues to keep coming, you know, flowing um, for everybody to be able to use. So there's no supply gaps or any of the, those sort of sorts of issues. So uh, ultimately, they will realize it, um, that they're you're safer, the infrastructure is safer, and that, that, it, that it is happening. Things are good things are happening um, because some of the, the regulation we've actually seen come out is very forward thinking. Um, mm -hmm. It's not published 10 years back, like some of the stuff that we've seen in the past. And that's that's because some of the stuff we've seen from the past has is, is taken that long to come out. Um, this was fast tracked. And I think we're, we've seen a new model for new regulations to start coming out, especially around cybersecurity that's a, on a much faster pace and, and maybe better uh, and more prescriptive um, to what the public needs. And this follows on with we were doing, you know, what was happening with the CMMC and uh, the defense industrial base and things along those lines. So, um, you know, the more it happens and the more this new model gets leveraged, probably the more the public will see of it as well. Mm -hmm. You've touched a little bit about the urgency here surrounding these issues. And as I understand it, OT cybersecurity projects are now often prioritized before compliance needs in a lot of cases. Um, and part of this process will be uh, to assess the potential impact, whether that's financial or operational, on each piece of equipment that you might have in the event of an attack. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about the priorities here for carrying out safe and non-disruptive audits and simulations. Uh, so, so I think that uh, uh, it is very important to understand that in these uh, industries, even when uh, cybersecurity is a priority, you need to make sure that it's done in a way that is non-disruptive, otherwise it will not be done. So everything that we are doing is done in a passive way. It's not part of the network. It's not impacting the network. And we have done it uh, hundreds of times so we can ensure the customer that this is not going to be any impact on their network. The second thing is that because you cannot have any, any downtime in these networks, also when you have the budget and you want to implement some cybersecurity measures, you need to prioritize. You need to know what will have the right impact, what will uh, secure your uh, crown jewels. So that's where we are coming into play, not just with our uh, uh, visibility systems, but also we're doing breach attack simulations. So we are taking a map of all of your assets. We are looking on what are the tactics that your relevant uh, attackers are using, and then we are simulating. If there would be an attacker in your network, can it get to your critical assets? What's the probability of that? What will happen if you will implement a firewall? What will implement if you will implement some uh, multi-factor authentication and so on? So we are simulating the attacks and we are simulating the different uh, security controls. And then we can make sure that we give you the recommendations in the right priority. So if you have only once a year to implement some security controls, you have done already a lot of these uh, simulations, a lot of these uh, assessments to make sure that you are doing the right uh, things first. Yeah, to follow on exactly what Elan said, um... One of the deliverables um, 
for every organization, if you go through, you know, the cybersecurity planning piece, this, this initial assessment, you know, from a vendor or something else, one of the deliverables of that should be the compliance that you actually, you know, have that you should get, they should give you an example of what, what to expect out of the product, because the product should be able to actually give you that as a deliverable, as an outcome, business outcome is that, you know, because you put in this product, you now can actually have a continual um, scoring of, you know, what your compliance is. So if you have IEC 62443, if you have NERC SIP or any of the other, you know, uh, big ones that are actually out there, some sort of NIST compliance or, you know, CMMC or, you know, you name it that's actually out there. One of the deliverables of this should be the compliance, except for you get this continuous scoring of the system over and over and over again. So you go look right before the auditors come in, maybe maybe a month before they come in and take a look at the, the, the appliance and say, okay, we've got a B minus, that's not bad. You know, you know, here's our gaps, let's let's clean them up. Let's throw in a couple of quick projects into the PMO and off to the races, you know, then we should be able to cover those gaps in that period of time. So something like that should be a deliverable of those products being used. I wanna talk about next generation devices and how you secure those devices if they are sharing a network with legacy systems. I think that's that's actually a very big challenge because everybody wants to use all the modern devices because they bring a lot of uh, business value. But on the other hand, there is the legacy there and nobody will just uh, replace everything in one day. So you need to see how you mix both of them. It is from cybersecurity point of view, it's actually a big uh, problem because you are then... A nightmare. So, so, So because, for example, if you are looking on the legacy devices, they are using some protocols which are not secure because they are very old, but they were not supposed to be connected to the internet. You bring in the next generation devices, now you bring in the internet connectivity, and all of a sudden, if you look on the flow of the attack, you have a nightmare. So, so it is important to look not just on the vulnerabilities, which in many cases, unfortunately, that's what people are doing, just looking on the vulnerabilities of each of the devices. You need to look on the flow of the potential attack. If you have a vulnerability here, you can start, but then you can actually get to the next device, which has another vulnerability, and then you can actually end up in something that is very critical in terms of the damage. So once you are having this kind of mixed networks, make sure that you are not just looking on discrete uh, vulnerabilities, make sure that you are looking on the overall uh, uh, potential attack flow. That's the reason why attack simulation is so uh, necessary, uh, and, and not necessarily from a full digital twin of the environment, but definitely some sort of digital image of the environment that you can actually capture of what's going on operationally. So if you've got something like that, then you can actually say, hey, look, we, we've got this, we can get this thing done, um, and, and then actually simulate the, the risks that you would actually have because that mixture of those devices uh, that you mentioned, generation ones mixed together TLS and, the, the, you know, everybody will say, oh, you know, TLS is extremely, you know, great encryption protocol, you know, TLS 1.3, it can't really be cracked. And if it is, you know, you, know, you see it happening, it, it breaks the communication channel or maybe MQTT is another one that a lot of people uh, like to, like to, to talk, talk about in the next generation industrial and the problem is those have already been, um, in some cases, um, compromised, but not through the ways that you would think that they would be compromised uh, through some sort of side channel attack. You know, most people that say, oh, this is so uh, secure now because it's PKI. And then all of a sudden I'm like, OK, so what do you what do you do to track your certificate and authentication mechanisms? And then they're like, uh, why do we have to do that? You know, yeah. <laughs> like, wait, wait, we, we missed the whole point. <laughs> it's great that you encrypt it, but. 
you know, you got to keep the keys somewhere hidden, you know, you got to gotta track when they're being used and all these things. And, and so you're not going to, even if you come up with the more secure stuff and start overlaying it to try to, to try to give that air gap piece, you then have to be able to track that stuff again. Um, and, and, and not that it isn't more secure. It, it certainly may be, but to Alan's point, you're, you're not going to forklift everything with it, right? You're going to have some of the old stuff in place. So you've opened that gap, uh, this series of exceptions and sometimes firewall rule creep, as I like to call it, you know, you all of a sudden you just end up with a firewall with a thousand exceptions and a thousand different, so, you know, open holes and in, in, in that are part of the organization, which has never seen the, the light of day, you know, sometimes for good reasons. Um, and, um, and then all of a sudden you start putting this equipment that not everybody is sure, hundred percent sure about exactly how it works. Um, and, you know, especially from the cloud side and, and, and then you, you end up with the perfect nightmare really. Um, but to, can it, is it, is it necessary? Well, yeah, digital transformations making it that way, because I always like to point out, you know, why is a 1969 Corvette slower or have less horsepower and slower to make that horsepower than your typical four door, four cylinder vehicle is nowadays, you know, your regular commuter car is faster than a, than, you know, muscle car, you know, uh, in, in the prime of muscle car days. Right. And, uh, and I usually get the answer, you know, people say, Oh, computers. Well, it's like, does a computer get out and push the car? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Right. So, uh, the, the issue there completely is, um, it, it transmits all this data. There's a thousand sensors in the motor of that small four cylinder car constantly tracking things and keeping them up to date and, and doing this continual feedback loop. Well, that sounds a lot like what we're promising with digital transformation, right? So we can say that the car is actually pretty much digitally transformed regardless of whether who's making it, whether or not it's running off electric motors now, which is even more transformed, right? So the, the digital transformation is coming, um, it, you know, just like it is in cars. And then, you know, cars are now seeing that next generation of it where the first robot besides a vacuum that many people will own inside their house or maybe outside their house is going to be a car um, is going to be that first robot, right? And so we see that that car manufacturing kind of preceding what we're seeing in the industrialization side too, the manufacturing side and everything along those lines. They kind of been the graduating together up into this digital transformation model. It's all about the data, continual mm -hmm. back, and and so you're just not going to stop it. Um, how can you keep your data in and things along those lines is going to be an even bigger, bigger, a, more, a bigger problem because the attack surface is only going to grow from here. So unless you've got a program in place, um, you know, right now with what you've got before you start connecting things, um, you don't do the, the initial hardening and know what you've got, then you're going to end up with a much bigger problem. Talking about data, this week, Anonymous, the cyber activists, announced that they had attacked the systems of the German subsidiary of Rosneft and that they had stolen 20 terabytes of data. There's a subsequent security warning being given throughout the petroleum industry as a whole. Um, Rosneft are, believe that the breach did not affect the company's business or supply situation. How easy is it to make that assurance? How can they be sure? <laughs> I don't think they are, they are sure. I think they're just making the insurance just, just to, to make everybody come. But, but I think to, to a large extent, in many cases, uh, you know, stealing these uh, terabytes of data is not a direct impact on, on the operations. It's not a direct impact on the business, but it can actually give you the first step. It can give you some credentials. It can give you some background information on some people. So it's usually not, a, I think, in that sense, even though they cannot assure it, I think in most cases they are right. It's not an, a direct and immediate impact, but it will be something that can be used to build actually the next level of attack. 
So the OT system is separate to that. Yeah, in most cases it is. In most cases it is separate. Sometimes there is a way to get from the IT that was hacked into the the OT because that's part of the value of the digital transformation. Uh, so there is a connectivity, but it is uh, limited. But when you steal so much data, as mentioned, you would get also credentials of info of uh, people. So you can use this also for the OT. If you are getting, for example, information about which vendors are being used in this uh, OT network, which types of devices are being used. Do you use some old uh, PLCs that have lots of uh, vulnerabilities? Did you upgrade your devices and so on? This can be used for planning the next uh, uh, round of uh, attacks. Also in the OT, because the OT schematics are kept in the same level, same area as the IT. Yeah, Twitter was very a flitter uh, with about the drop, and a lot of cybersecurity experts mirror what you know our thoughts were as well. Which was regardless of the fact that um, you know it was a, a feel good situation, right? Uh, it was actually somewhat dangerous for them to drop it because it gave. Uh, a viewpoint of normal operations within any organization, those in the West as well. And so it's a great amount of OSINT that people now can go use. And OSINT is that open source intelligence, mm -hmm. right? Um, that you can then take that and then use it both for bad and for good, just like any other, you know, uh, tool, it could be used as a weapon as well. Right. So um, that, that, that ends up being one of the biggest problems that, the, that we saw coming out of it. So, that's probably the reason why there was such a, an alert for many organizations, because, you know, a lot of these are rinse and repeat type things. We even like to call, you know, some of what, what these companies do because they're, they're lead, uh, you know, certified type situations, but they're also lean and Six Sigma as well. And, and the whole idea behind Six Sigma and, and manufacturing operations is the fact that you do something repeatedly uh, mm -hmm. and you, you always have these incremental changes to make it even more perfect all the time. So a lot of these, you know, companies will cut and paste almost the same exact logic from one plant to the other or one well for, to the other, just to kind of have this repeatability. So you cut out many mistakes that you would normally make. Well, that, that comes back to haunt you. If, if one of the other uh, companies in your peer group um, have a huge dump of data, you will then have to start worrying about that as well, because it probably pretty much mirrors you know, something that you're doing in the field as well, um, simply because of, you know, how the strategies being used in manufacturing as well as energy production. So so that's the reason why, um, to Alon's point earlier, that these things can be kind of a problem. Uh, hope that provides enough context. Absolutely. Fascinating stuff. Um, what one thing would you like our listeners to take away from our short conversation today? I think that uh, the main uh, takeaway for me is that uh, cybersecurity for OT Networks is not uh, an easy thing, but uh, it's something that needs to be prioritized uh, before it's too late, because once something happens, it's important that you have already done your first uh, kind of iteration of homework, so you know what to expect. Yeah, and, and, and any of these things, um, I'd like people to take it away. It's, it's, it, it's not impossible to get started, right? Um, there's lots of organizations that are out there to help. If you reach out to the community, like I mentioned, InfraGuard, and there's a bunch of others that are actually out there. But more to the point, there's also a lot of private companies uh, that aren't ambulance chasing that are simply just trying to help organizations get secure. Um, there's plenty of them out there. Um, great architectures, great meaning types of get started. Right. Don't wait. Don't don't have analysis paralysis. Um, you know, this is the, the thing, time to, 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 to finally get started. And, and, and it, there's never there's. 
they're always going to be a good partner to actually help you through that process, both maturation as well as risk strategy. So um, the best thing to do is reach out, you know, uh, external to your organization and find out. We will wrap it up there. Thank you so much, Ilan Varda and James Cave. Thank you very much. Thank you. My thanks to Alan and James for the insight that they were able to offer on OT security, on vulnerability management, and on US-specific cybersecurity practices. World Pipelines helps oil and gas pipeline professionals stay informed about the midstream sector, offering technical articles, regional briefings, project and contract news, and think pieces on pipelines all over the world. Register to receive a print or digital copy at worldpipelines.com and search World Pipelines on LinkedIn to join our community.